Let's do this. The Cult of Hockey podcast by the faithful and for the faithful. I'm David Staples of the Edmonton Journal, and I'm here today with Bruce McCurdy. Hey, Bruce. Hey, David. How's it going today? Ah, very well, Bruce. Very well. I'm. Uh, I, I have to say, I'm. I be my natural uh, rhythm in life is kind of is a not more nocturnal than an early. Mo- I'm not a morning person, so as the lockdown goes, I, like the the. Uh, I'm finding it harder to get out of bed and easier to work late into the night. It seems to be my pattern. So it, uh, the mornings are a bit uh, discouraging, but, uh, you know, I psych myself up, get out of bed and get at it. And here we are. How about you? I've always been a night person by nature. And you know this for all the late night yes. game grades I've written. And, of course, I'm, I do astronomy as uh, one of my life's passions, which generally involves staying awake at night. So it's, uh, I watched the uh, penumbral eclipse of the moon this morning at 2.30. So, Wow. Yeah. What's penumbral? penumbral? Just means the moon went, went through the outer shadow of the earth. So just a light shading on one edge of the moon. Very subtle. It's only for super hardcore geeks like myself. To, you know, it's not like a deep total lunar eclipse where it turns red. You know, it was nothing like that. It was just a... Just a little bit more evidence that there's uh, the Earth casts a shadow, and once in a while, it, it or part of it falls on the moon. So, I, I heard the song uh, Nick Drake's "Pink Moon" the other day, which oh. had a bit of a revival a few years ago with, because mm-hmm. of a Volkswagen commercial. Uh, is there ever a pink moon? Yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a there's a um, during a during a total lunar eclipse, the moon actually turns kind of red. And that's because the uh, the sunlight that filters through the Earth's atmosphere around the edges of the Earth, that's casting the shadow. But a little bit of sunlight filters through, and it's red sunlight, just like we see red in the in the sunset or sunrise. The red light refracts more efficiently than the blue, so you get this this uh, preferentially red colors anytime the the uh, the sun is near the horizon or by refraction during a uh, total lunar eclipse, the moon itself turns red or at least orange or pink or ochre, you know, somewhere in that. In that uh, yeah, I think I've seen the orange moon. That's more familiar to me. All right. Uh, today on the Cult of Hockey podcast, we're going to be talking about a couple different things. Um, last week, I came up with my list of we're re-ranking the Oilers defensemen based on our viewings of the team in Europe, because um, pretty much are all the prospects now playing with Kemp heading over there, Bruce? Is every single... All but Mike Kesselring. Kesselring, and he's going to start playing in the USA uh, right away uh, for his... Boxing for uh, Northeastern. Boxing did it? They put it off till then? Yeah, they put it off. Yeah. Oh, geez. Okay. Well, that's new. that was news to me. There's an update. So he's the only one sitting out. We'll see what happens in the States. They might get that vaccine pretty quick. Um, now... The other thing we're going to talk about, Bruce, is we've been watching these games from Europe now for a month and a half now, two months almost. Solid month, anyway. Yeah, and uh, so it's a it's kind of a weird way to follow Oilers hockey because it's hockey with a little bit of tribalism and partisanship, which is one of the big joys of hockey, right? Is is rooting right. for your home team. It's this this is this is this is how we channel these. Sometimes violent emotions, uh, you know, these raw tribal emotions are they're they're channeled into this um, 
kind of safe way to express them through our devotion to team sport. And it's a big part of watching a hockey game is rooting for your team. It's when you're, when we're watching these games though, of the Oilers players, like we might be rooting, you might have a little bit of that feeling watching them play, but it's kind of dissipated because it's, you know, it's Fralunda versus Vax Joe or something like that. And you don't give a hoot about either team, frankly, and you don't give a hoot about most of the players on the ice. So it's actually got to be that player, Oilers prospect, who is exciting you uh, or not when you're watching right. the game. And by now, Bruce, I have a list of players I do not want to see. <laughs> and I have a list that I don't like the thought of watching their games just bores me to tears. Like just watching them alone, like watching their shifts in a game. It honestly bores. And some of these are decent hockey players. Right. But there's other players I'm just thrilled to see. Like I just want to watch every single game that they play. And uh, so let's go down our list. We don't have to get into the guys who bore us to tears because that might be a little bit negative. We might mention them now and then, Marcus Niemelainen, uh, as as we go along here. But, but um, we can – let's just focus on the guys who really <laughs> excite us. <laughs> Who's your favorite? Like if you had to watch – pick one guy you were going to watch, and, and like even if you're not even writing about it, who would you watch? Oh, boy. Uh it would be a toss-up between the top two for me, Broberg and Bouchard. Uh, really enjoy watching both of them play. Uh, Broberg's more of the dynamic uh, player in terms of his skating and his ability to uh, uh, to thrill you with an end-to-end rush or, or a particularly uh, spectacular athletic play or sequence. Uh, Bouchard... Uh, just because I so enjoy his offensive mind and his ability to process the game and to uh, uh, to to choose wisely in terms of puck distribution, shooting a puck himself, rushing up the ice himself, or distributing it to uh, the appropriate teammate, and and he's got he's got a real good processor on the uh, offensive side of things, and uh, he can be fun to watch for that. For that reason, and plus, you know, the the actual skill of his passing and how dangerous his shot is from the point. So he's a fun player to watch as well. Yeah, for me, it's actually quite easy. I have a number one pick, and the the other ones aren't even close. I I, I would watch Philip Broberg's games, Broberry's games. Mm-hmm. He is, and, and it's and it's because of it. There's a couple things. I think one of the things that attracts me to the games is the, the the unknown. Like here's a player. Uh, that I haven't heard of before, I haven't seen much of before. Like I was really uh, curious to see Nima Linen's games initially and and uh, uh, Philip Berryland's games initially because I hadn't really seen those players much. Nope. Um, and Broberry's in the same category where he um, he's a bit of an unknown, especially in the pro league. And we're, this is for for you and I at least the first real chance we're getting to see game in game out. And then the other unknown is with him is you never know which Broberry you're going to get during a yeah. game. There's some games where he's just this, where he's totally into it and he's taking chances. He's moving his feet. He's rushing with the puck. He's uh, playing more aggressively on defense. And there's other games where he's much more passive. And and it's interesting to think, okay, who who is the real Philip Broberry? What are we mm-hmm. going to get? And, you know, being an optimist, and he, he is only 19 years old playing in a man's league, there's a feeling like, the good stuff is going to rise to the top. Doesn't always work that way, though, in hockey. Mm-hmm. Sometimes a player's confidence can be crushed, 
And it seems like it's almost like a confidence slash experience thing with him. Like as he gets more experience, he'll get, he should, he definitely will get better. But where will the confidence go? Like where, you know, that will to attack and will it, that be crushed or will it, will he just, you know, make up his mind? He's this, that, that player. And it still seems like it's kind of in the balance certainly when you watch his games and I, and I can't read his mind. I don't know what's going on inside or the instructions he's getting from his coach, but there's this mystery every time you tune into his games. It seems like whether you're going to get, you know, the Broberry who reminds you reminiscent of the great rushing defenseman of the NHL, or you're going to see a defenseman who will struggle, who will struggle to be in the top four in the NHL, like a top four D-man on his team in the NHL, like who who would be a bottom pairing D-man, who some, that's what some analysts see in him sometimes. And, and you'll hear that comment. We heard it from uh, Mike Zanier, uh, who is a former Oilers player now in Sweden and doing commentary over there, who sees him as, as, as he put it, as a four, five, six D-man. So a little less optimistic. Mm-hmm. So that's, he's number one by far. And then Bouchard for me is is number two just because of his sublime skill moving the puck Bruce I agree with you like it's just he just strikes me as being really NHL ready and it's it's interesting if they hadn't signed Tyson Berry um I think he'd be making the team for sure mm-hmm. I mean he's a vast to me he's a, he'd be a, a really market improvement over Matt Benning although I like Matt Benning's game quite a bit um in term if they hadn't signed Barry because because you could also right. use Bouchard on the power play Right. But um, anyway, he's gonna he's gonna be in the NHL uh, sooner than later. He, he's he's ready. It just strikes me as he's ready to play, and he's fairly consistently. Other than that, um, I mean, Puljujarvi's game, Puljujarvi's games, who I've watched a lot of. Um, I'd like to see him score more, like like all Oilers fans. But he he there's quite a usually a lot of positive activity in his games. He, you know, he's not always cashing in. Or his line isn't always cashing in. He's he's pretty exciting to watch though over there because of his the confidence in his game and, and the dominance of his game generally speaking. Yeah, so I guess he'd be my third pick for most exciting. With honorable mention going to Ryan McLeod just to see Ryan McLeod smoke up and down the ice in mm-hmm. in Switzerland is encouraging, right? It's kind of exciting, and he he again also has that you know game breaking ability because of his speed and size to. To, to make one one or two rushes a game, which are kind of uh, breath encouraging, if not breathtaking. Mm-hmm. Well, rushing is one thing. Getting something out of the rush is something else again. <laughs> I, I remember, here's our mandatory 70s sports reference. Uh, a, a speedy center who played with the WHA Oilers, Bobby Sheehan. Bobby Sheehan. And about once a game, Bobby would get the puck in his own end of the ice and he'd just take off with it at like 100 miles an hour up the ice. And excitement would ensue, but goals rarely. Murray Wilson's another <laughs> one, right? Murray Wilson. And Ryan McLeod actually kind of reminds me, like he's a little different player than Sheehan stylistically. Right. He, he is kind of a more of a Murray Wilson type. And Murray Wilson had an okay NHL career. He was he, he was on some cup winning teams. So mm-hmm. I, I do see an NHL player in Ryan McLeod. I'm just not sure what player that that is yet and i i don't know if he's figured it out himself um my third guy for now uh, at least is uh, Raphael lavois I've, uh, I've had a chance to watch a number of his games in the hockey house Svenska. and he's um he's a big time shooter of the puck as well he routinely gets six seven eight shots in a game he's the best player on his team Vasby, uh and 
I guess recently, I, I watched a few of his earlier games, and recently he had a little slump where he went like four games without a point, and now he's back on scoring a goal in each of his last three games, and a uh, goal and assist in, uh, in the game yesterday he helped his team win. And uh, he's, um, let's put it this way, he's the most watchable player on Vasby. <laughs> <laughs> That, it's, that is known as damning with faint praise, Bruce. Right. But oh well, um, yes, uh, but you like him. You like him anyway. Like. I, I do. Yeah, he's a big guy, right shot, loves to shoot. You know, but he can pass, and he, you know, he's a he's an offensive, uh, he's an offense first player. And if I may, just one comment on your on your observations of Philip Broberry, and that is that sometimes you know he's like the little girl with the curl right and uh yeah sometimes when he's good he's very very good and when he's bad he's horrid it's, it's, i think that was the story yeah. about her uh i think there's a very distinct possibility we're going to get both of those guys and we're going to get a guy who's a little bit inconsistent you know he'll, he'll have his up and his down and i'll compare him with the two first round draft picks that are currently playing for the oilers darnell nurse who some compare him to physically in terms of his his style of playing, his you know his his ability to take over a game physically, and the guy I often compare him to as you know sort of his Swedish counterpart who who did his extra time in Sweden and then came over Oscar Kleppbaum, and both those guys you know like the, neither one of them you could really call a steady Eddie, right? I mean they're up, they're great when they're playing yeah. really well, they're yeah, good when enough. they're not playing well, not so good, and and. Sometimes, you know, you get people get a little bit of a blind spot. Oscar's our best defenseman. Well, yeah, he's our best defenseman for the last two weeks, but next week he might be minus four, you know, and, and yeah. his, his game wavers, his, you know, he, his defensive game wavers. I mean, you've talked about defensive slumps for players going through them for years, and Oscar is particularly susceptible to them, in my view. And so I think with uh, Broberry, we're going to get some of both, and the question is what ratio, and if he can... If he can get to you know to the point where he's playing near his best game for the majority of the time, then Oilers uh, are going to have a good player. Makes me wonder who the most consistent D-man on the Oilers is, and Ethan Bear comes to mind uh, as probably the most consistent, and who played in the top four. And and I wonder how much of that is due to injury, like with Larson and Clefbaum, right? Like both of them battling their various ailments, shoulder and back. And I think their their fortunes on the ice kind of rising and falling with how well they 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 feel physically. Nurse is getting more consistent, I would say. Um, yeah, I agree. But but he also kind of consistently doesn't completely get the job done on defense or on the attack. Like he's a he's a good defenseman, but like it's it, he, he doesn't he hasn't rised up to that next level yet. So, but I would say he might be a little bit more consistent. We could actually look into this with our some of our numbers and. And try to determine who is the, the steadiest Eddie on the Oilers blue line. Then maybe that'll be a future post. We can start by throwing out all results from the month of August. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't the pretend playoffs. that play-in series never happened, and then yeah. see what else we got. Because, yeah, uh, I agree, Bruce. There that were was disappointments just a, across the board, especially a, on the back end and the and the play-in series. What a mess that was. That's uh, that's what I'm left with. What a what a fiasco for the Oilers, and what a mess just all around. <laughs> was just bad um all right uh let's move on bruce and let's talk about your top seven list so we've already talked a little bit about the players why don't you just give me your list straight from one to nine and then i'll i'll ask you a few questions about what you're thinking okay yeah this is a, you did the same thing maybe 10 days ago and you you 
gone through and viewed all the defensemen. I still had two left to go that I that I watched for my current post, uh, which is uh, nominally about Marcus Niemelainen and Mike Kesselring. And Kesselring hasn't played yet, and he won't play until Boxing Day at the soonest for Northeastern University. So in his case, I went back to a game he played from last year's Beanpot tournament uh, against Harvard University. And just just to get a taste of the guy in action, I've seen him at a couple of dev camps and have been really impressed both times. And uh, uh, I was further impressed in this showing. Anyway, uh, my overall rankings, these are nine defensemen that we have overall ranked in our Oilers top 16 prospects on our uh, on the provisional list we did for 2020 when the draft was postponed. So there was no new draft picks in there. And we had nine defensemen, three goalies, and only five forwards in our top 17. So thus the Oilers, uh, I think, smart decision to pick nothing but forwards this year because they're very deep on defense. So here goes with the list. Number one, Evan Bouchard. Number two, Philip Broberg, very close. Number three, Dmitry Samarukov. Number four, William Lagesson. Five, Theodore Lenstrom. Six, Michael Kesselring. Seven, Philip Berglund. Eight, Phil Kemp. Nine, Marcus Niemelainen. Okay, so there's a lot of similarities in our list. Probably. Uh, lists. Uh, we both have Bouchard and Broberg right at the top. Mm-hmm. And we both have Kemp and Niemelainen right at the bottom. Bruce, mm-hmm. You, what did you see in Nima Linen's? You, you know, and again, we've only we've only seen one game each. Is that correct? So, so these yeah. these are these are first impressions of this player. What did you see uh, that kind of had you doubting him? As a well, it's, I, it's impossible to get a worse first impression <laughs> than I got of Mark Nima Linen because I, I watched his most recent game on Sunday. He'd been out for about a month. He came back and he played Saturday, Sunday. Ideally, I would have watched both games, but I just picked the, the most recent one. So t- two games on back-to-back days, that's a tough ask for a guy who's coming back from anything, especially a big, ponderous defenseman. Anyway, four seconds. Four seconds into the first period, he got beat for a goal. Uh, and They just sort of pushed the puck ahead from the face-off circle. The right winger came in on him. Got the puck right into what I call his arc, you know, where the guy's stick is sort of the area that he controls between his feet and the, and the stick mm-hmm. blade. Anywhere in there, yeah. the guy should be able to get a piece of the puck. Well, no, he didn't. The guy put the puck right in there, shot it through Niemelainen's massive screen and beat the goalie from too far out. I mean, honestly, the goal is on the goalie more than anyone. And I, I like I started watching this video and it was like, Wait a minute, the puck's in the net. They haven't put the time clock up yet. And when they did, four seconds had elapsed, and that was the official time of the goal. I don't know if it's a Liga record, but I suspect it pretty much has to be. Like, it's hard to do it quicker. And he, uh, I did, what I do know is the NHL record after 103 years is five seconds fastest goal off the start of a game. It's never been done faster than five seconds in 57,855 games. I was curious enough that I figured out how many games have been played in the NHL without anyone ever scoring in the first four seconds. (sighs) 57,000 plus. Anyway, it happened in this game, and Nima Linen was a culprit on the goal. 
And you know what? He was a culprit on a similar play at least three other times in the game where a guy shot the puck right through him. He wasn't able to get a piece of it. And the goalie didn't get a real good view of the shot because the towering defenseman was between him and the shooter. And that's a problem. I mean, if you're going to be a great big, uh, you know, defense first defenseman, right? You, you've got to be getting in the way of pucks as well as players. And he was struggling mightily in that regard. And, and, uh, he took a couple of penalties and just sort of routine battle situations. He took one guy, tackled another guy, where there was no real need for it. Neither one was in a particularly dangerous spot on the ice. And the plus side, like, he didn't have any offense at all, with the exception of one admittedly terrific stretch pass, where he had the puck on his stick, looked up, and he picked out a teammate. Uh, breaking for the far blue line and hit him right on the tape. And the guy went in and got pulled down and was awarded a penalty shot. So he did contribute to the offense in that way. But otherwise, when he had the puck on the stick, it was dump it into the corner, ring it around the boards, chop it out into the neutral zone, you know, but nothing, you know, and a few sort of routine route passes to his partner and so on and short breakout passes, but nothing that convinced me that he's any kind of a... Uh, uh, a dandy with the puck on his stick and not a lot that convinced me that he was uh, a particularly gifted defensive defenseman nor that he was a particularly physical one or tough to play against so I honestly came out from that game wondering why the Oilers signed this guy yeah so we had the first same first impression and I think both of us agree the caveat is this is these are first impressions right and we may be dealing with a player who's been dealing we'll with injury again. We'll look again and we'll uh, try to give a, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll follow. It's kind of, we're not looking forward to watching those games. I, I, uh, I admit, but we will, we will dig in and, and have another look at the player. Here's like, I, I, my last viewings of him was when he was 17 playing for the Finnish junior team in the under 18 tournament, just before in in his draft year. And, uh, and then I, and I watched some of his games in the OHL and my, my memory of him was as a much better skater for yeah. someone his size. And um, so this is why I'm, the injury thing seems to be, um, I'm just wondering if he's banged up or something's yeah. happening with the skating because I just remember him skating better. And I think that's why he was yeah, drafted third, a third round pick. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though he didn't have a lot of offense there, there was the hope that someone that big who could skate like, like him, who seemed to have NHL average or NHL plus skating maybe for a guy mm-hmm. that big could become a player. And when I see when I saw him now, he didn't. I thought this is, like he didn't seem like the same player, because his, he just was struggling. The skating wasn't there, so uh, we'll keep an eye on that. He's from the Marek Malik uh, Anton Belov school of skating, <laughs> which is big, slow, ponderous, slightly faster than he looks because he's got a long stride, uh, but uh, not uh, not particularly graceful uh, nor agile. Uh, Curtis Foster without the shot. <laughs> yeah. Um, so he's we we both have him, and then then we both have Kemp. I think at number eight, and um, Kemp just signed with Lavoie's team, right? With Vasby, yes. I believe. So he'll be joining him there, and that's great. Mm. Like, how many players have has Ken Holland placed in Europe? It's it's almost fifteen. I think it's, eight, I think it's eighteen now 18? altogether. Way to go, Ken Holland, and that's a huge thing for Kemp to be playing this this year it's a it's a it's probably kind of an equivalent league to the league he was playing with in terms of um the talent of the players the uh there might be maybe even he's he's gone down a step in competition 
certainly playing on Basby, right. he's he's gone down a step in in his teammates' level of competence, probably. But um, it's great he's playing, and um, I, I have similar concerns. Kemp is a battler, but I just worry about his skating. Now, I want to ask you about Michael Kesselring because that's the other guy you mm. got. Your first, yeah. we'd seen him in de- Dev Camp. He looked great, and I just thought. When I looked at him, and this is like an old kind of hockey, you know, he looked like a player, Bruce. Like he, he's, he's smart. He's in the game. He's competing. He's making plays. He's looking to make plays. He's physical. He can pass the puck. He can make a play. He can make a smart play. Um, and he's six foot five, and he's going to be. He's like his dad, just um, Casey Kesselring, his father, uh, says he's about two seventeen now. So this is a guy who was drafted in the sixth round i believe mm-hmm. yep. uh, and man i just i i got a great i watched i think three of his games and i got a really strong first impression of yeah. a player who's a definite oilers prospect and i had him even a little bit higher on my list than than you had him because because of that so what what was your take on him yeah i, I just made sure i picked one of the games that you hadn't watched so that you yeah. know we get an extra you know, it, uh, we, we wouldn't be reporting on the same thing for starters. And so I did pick the semifinal from the bean pot. For whatever reason, the final wasn't available, which they also won in double overtime uh, Northeastern to take the tournament. Uh, but I liked his his presence. I liked the fact he, he was a freshman last year, Northeastern, 20-year-old uh, freshman, turned 20 during the year. And yet he was out there to start every period. He was put out there by the coach at, after every goal, except for the goal his own unit scored when they went off for a rest. He was out to finish uh, two of the three periods. And those are sometimes just little signs from the coach of who he trusts, right? Who's out there and, uh, you know, you don't want to be blowing it on the first shift a la Marcus <laughs> and Marcus. you don't want to, uh, you don't, you know, you, you want, you want people you can trust out there in those uh, specific situations and right after a goal is one as well. So basically, center ice face-offs. Uh, sometimes that's a tell. Uh, I liked his um, I liked his gamesmanship. I liked he was clearly, like his reads of the game were good. Uh, he was in good defensive position, but he wasn't afraid to jump up into the play. And when he did jump up for, into the play, he called for the puck, you know, when he was open and he, he was the right man to get the, you could hear it on the, on the thing, calling for the puck. Or he would be pointing to a teammate which way to go to cover somebody while he went to cover the other alternative. You know, just little little things like that. And some... Um, uh, some players do that kind of naturally, and other guys just go about their business and play quiet. And the Oilers team, as a team, has been accused of the latter for a long time. I'm going all the way back to Dallas Aikens. Uh, but uh, Kesselring, he kind of stood out for me for for that aspect. Like he looked like a, you know, just kind of a natural who understood the game, not just hit what he had to do himself, but he saw he saw the bigger picture. Was my take from watching this one game. So uh, I saw enough that. I put him like I really broke my list down into three groups of three, and he's in the middle group. And I ranked him behind uh, Lagesson and Lindstrom, who are both older and closer to the NHL. But in the long run, honestly, Kesselring could have a, a better career than either of those guys, and potentially it's not even close. But it's so hard to project guys at different levels, different you know different parts of their development curve playing against different 
types of uh, levels of competition and so on. So, I mean, it's a crapshoot anytime you do these rankings, frankly. But uh, uh, I, I came away more encouraged still that the Oilers have a diamond in the rough here on Mike Kesselring. Yeah, I had, I did, because I, my, my list is a bit more of a mishmash because you're, you're trying to incorporate ceiling. What's, what's the player's ceiling with, um, because, you know, if you did just a list on their ceiling, what's the player's ceiling? I think I would have Philip Broberry number one. Mm -hmm. I think he's got a higher ceiling, possible ceiling than Evan Bouchard. Mm -hmm. But I had Bouchard ahead just because he, he's, has a higher level of established skill and is more likely to help right away. So mm. you're 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 balancing those two those two factors with all of these players, and um, that's why you know I I think um, and and for me for me right now though I I do think Lenstrom and Lagesson are comparable players right now because mm-hmm. they're both similar age, yep. and um, I I do I, one one area that we we, we differ is I do have Lenstrom ahead of Lagesson. And I know that's a bit of might be considered a bit of a reach because Lagesson's played in North America, right. both as a college hockey player and as an AHL player. And he's and he's an accomplished. He was a very good AHL player. Mm-hmm. Um, he's clearly ready to be a seventh D man in the NHL and maybe play on the bottom pairing and not hurt his team very much and be fine, like be as good as Matt Benning, for instance. Um, but I just think Lenstrom has that added element to his game where. Uh, if he takes, if if he um, can adapt quickly to the North American game, and I see that in him, like I, because of his activity, because of his skating and his aggressiveness and his reading of the game, I see a player who I think can can play the North American game. I see someone who could be more than a, a bottom pairing defenseman, um, possibly. What's the name of the Washington D man who Chicago had first and then went to oh, the? Yeah. Uh, it took a oh, while. Michael Kempney. Kempney. I just think this, you know, these the smart D-man, Jalmerson, uh, who played for the Hawks for a long time. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not, a, he's not, that's a, that's the ultimate ceiling, obviously, for Lenstrom. But I see that kind of smarts and ability, and we'll see if it translates or not. So that's why I had him, because I really like William Loggison as a hockey player. But what I really like, Bruce, is, man, mm-hmm. the Oilers are just stacked. Yeah. Like, I, I feel confident in saying that, having seen these games. There's at least, um, there's, well, there's six guys, I guess, who who seem like, or seven guys, who seem like, um, you know, outside of, yeah, six guys, because I'm not sure on Berylin, Nimalainen, and Kemp. Right. But other than that, I see guys um, who either have the ceiling or right now or, or could be in the NHL. And there's a few of them could be right now NHL guys. And then there's, there's guys whose ceiling is like Kessel ring. He, he looks like he could play in the NHL for a a handful of games, at least work his way to that level where he's going to get that opportunity. And we'll see where it goes. When you have this kind of young talent on, on the blue line. Yeah. I just wonder what this team, like three years from now, who are we going to, who's going to still be there? of this current group of defensemen on the Oilers this coming year. So, you know, this year we have Nurse Bear, Larson, Jones, Russell, Barry, uh, Clefbaum. Um, how many of those guys are going to be here? And 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 for a team that has real salary cap issues ahead, this is absolutely critical for the Oilers, and they are set up in a way they haven't been in forever. 
mm-hmm. with young defenseman prospects. So good work to all the different people who who have been involved in assembling this talent. And this goes back to Shirelli, uh, Keith Gretzky, Bob Green. Um, some of these guys are still with the Edmonton owners. Even Stu McGregor might have has had a hand with Logason and maybe some of the other. He might have had a hand in the 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 Bear Jones Marino uh, bonanza. Um, so, yeah. way to go, all you people that that assembled this group of Ken Holland, who assembled this group of players, because um, I'm impressed with them. Yeah, one shout out for a guy we haven't really mentioned yet, Dmitry Samorkov, uh, number three, I think on both our lists. Or well, maybe some four on yours. Anyway, yeah. he's uh, he's uh, he's made mammoth strides. Like last year, he was sort of a struggling, unsure rookie in the AHL, playing on a struggling team, and I'm not sure his role was ever sort of clearly defined on that on that team. Uh, but now one year later, he's in the KHL, a much tougher league than the AHL. In fact, the second best league in the world, according to most. Uh, playing on the top team in the KHL, playing in the top four, possibly top two. I'm not really sure. Like, we, we're only watching the shifts of, uh, of the players of interest, not the entire games, not enough hours in the day. Uh, but uh, he's been he's been rock solid every game I've watched. And, I mean, he's... He's just like a metronome. You look at the stats at the end of the game. He's, he's played 18 minutes. He's got zero points. He might have one point, but he's plus one. He's plus one again the next game, plus one again the game after that. And he's like plus 20 on the year, leading the KHL, he and his partner. And they're barely getting scored on at all. Like, I think they've been on the ice for six goals against uh, all year long, at least uh, at even strength. And he's, uh, you know, he's playing the right side, so he's a lefty. But he's playing with the lefty, and he's the one that's moved over, and he's done so successfully. And he's, you know, he's keeping it simple. He's not really, you know, diving deep into his offensive bag of tricks, which we know he does have based on what we saw of him in junior hockey. Uh, but he's more just minding the store in his own end, getting the puck up to the forwards, keeping it out of his own net, getting it back up to the forwards again, letting them look after business at the good end of the ice. And I mean, it is a good team. And one of the ways you get a good plus is if, you, if you're a good player on a good team, but you have to be a good player, and he is. And so that's a that's a that's a really encouraging development is how uh, how he's moved up in the steady Eddie category. So yeah, of of the big three, you know, maybe he's even the closest. It's hard to say, but uh, the good news for the Oilers is that all three of them are still on entry level contracts and will be next season, and that all three of them are. Uh, ineligible for the expansion draft. They're sheltered from the upcoming Seattle expansion draft. So they have, even if they lose, somehow lose a defender to Seattle, well, they have these three young guys that are that are primed and, and ready to move into the NHL, at least I would say in 2021-22 in each case. Yeah, uh, Samarukov, the human metronome. He, one of the... Um, one of the uh, issues apparently last year in Bakersfield, he, he has apparently a preference to play as a left shot guy on the right side. And he's one of those guys because of his strong skating. I'd put Caleb Jones in the same category as a left shot guy playing the right side. They don't, there doesn't seem to be a marked drop off in performance. I can't say that backed by any numbers or any statistical analysis, just by eye of the two players, but they, he, he apparently preferred that and he wasn't always getting that. 
in uh, Bakersfield. It was one of those. Um, I always hate these situations, like where they have the veteran player, like Logan Day, seemed to play ahead of Sam Rukov. and I never saw Logan Day as any kind of prospect at all. And but he had the contract, and he was playing, and um, you know, not right. not always. He often would have him put him at forward, but I just thought, like, why, you know. I just wonder in retrospect if they might have done that differently. Like, you know, just go with Samarukov. Of course, they want the players to earn everything they get in the minor leagues. And, you know, Day was the veteran and they're giving him a chance. And there might be some aspect of wanting to win because Day might help you win a little bit more. That's more of a sure thing. But I'm not sure that Samarukov got off on the right foot. In Bakersfield, he just took a while, it looks like, to adjust. But, man, is he ever killing it in Moscow? And, uh, yeah, good for him. Uh, and you're right, Bruce, about the expansion draft. And here's my question. Because these, let's say Sam Rukov is staying the whole year, mm-hmm. That's they don't burn a year on his ELC. They have, like It's like an extra year. Do they do they burn a year? they do. Or, yeah, they do. Are you they, sure? Yeah, they loaned him out, but he's still in the development phase. So I'm not sure how it works in terms of who pays him how much and so on. But uh, uh, I don't think that's a way of taking time off of the... Uh, uh, entry level contract. You don't get the owners aren't going to get an extra year then. The it does don't get take that. time off of the uh, the years of service that they burn to become a, a, a UFA. And for instance, Puljujarvi last year played over in in Finland in his fourth year. And normally after the fourth year, a player gets his arbitration rights, and he didn't. So there's certainly some fine print in there, and I, I'm not the lawyer that can tell you what it all means, but. Uh, uh, the best of my understanding is a, as a uh, uh, entry-level contract, once the clock starts ticking, even if you loan the guy out, it keeps ticking. Because they've loaned guys before, right? And it's, uh, so loan? anyway, that's that's my understanding. And maybe we have a listener like, say, Original Pozar, who uh, uh, who yes. is a lawyer. Often corrects And us. who loves the fine print <laughs> yes. on CBA. And maybe yeah. he'll, be, he'll pop in our DMs with a... A word of wisdom about uh, about how this affects uh, Dmitry Samarkov. But as I personally understand it, this is the second year of his three-year ELC. But he he still you know he'll still have a year to go, and he remains exempt from the Seattle draft. So yeah, original post I was very polite about it. Like he never like goes right on Twitter and like hey you got this wrong. It's always a nice DM. Like you know mm-hmm. you guys might want to think about this that this is the, the actual this is the actual rule that you didn't quite. Uh, necessarily graphs fully in your podcast yeah so that that would be a, a good clarification from someone it like does if samaruka plays the full year because it's a loan situation uh-huh. and i wonder if there's if it's different if it's a loan situation as opposed to like pulia yarvi going over there um just on, on his own kind of uh not alone but yeah well, Philip, it's a Philip different Broberg. contract situation. Go ahead. Philip Broberry is loaned over there for the whole season, but his contract will slide because he's still a teenager, right? So he, uh, it's not until they turn twenty that they, you know, that those those years start to to count up. So so he he's loaned out, and that actually does push his contract back a year. And of course, the one thing to remember in all of this is that the European season is going to end in March or, or April, whatever, when the playoffs wind up. The NHL is going to be going into May, June, possibly even early July by the time they get, you know, down to the nitty gritty of the playoffs. So the Oilers could well get an infusion, a second infusion of talent, 
partway through the season of the guys who did commit to play for the whole year in Europe, but the year's over there, and it's still really ongoing over here. So a guy like Sam Marukov, he could show up in April ready to go, and all of a sudden you've got a new decision to make and a new option. Yeah, so that would be who who's there for the full year. That's uh, Camp is now there for the full year um, when when he signed. I think uh, I'm not sure about guys not like sure. Alsvenskan is Alsvenskan's got looser rules. This uh, Swedish Hockey League is the one that's the trickiest, and I think we'll see Broberry there for the whole year. I think. And Landstrom, but, we don't do we know about Landstrom if he's coming for Camp? I think he was intending yeah, I, to come for Camp, yeah, but he's, he's still. Yeah, he's planning to come over here, and the, the reason they, he was able to play in the top league and not the second division was because he ha, was an existing player that had some kind of contractual sort of con- continuity. And again, that, you know, the SHL, you know, the, the NHL has a CBA. Well, so does the SHL have the equivalent of one. And some of this business of where guys go and how it works with their contracts, what, all I can say for sure is that after 2012-13, when a whole bunch of NHLers came to play in the SHL and they all abandoned ship in early January when the lockout ended and left some of the SHL teams, uh, you know, without players that they said, we're not going to let that happen again. We're going to have certain restraints in place that either players play the whole year or or we let guys go because they've already given us previous service. And it's a... Uh, it's a bit of a dog's breakfast and, and seems to be a different rule for every player, but there there are... Uh, uh, there are um, uh, the the SHL has took measures to protect itself, but I think Lindstrom is available to come. I don't think he would have gone back to his team because he this was the year he was going to come over. It'll be interesting to see what happens because if there's no AHL, does it make sense for Lindstrom to come over if to oh, be right. on the taxi squad? It might, it might not. I don't know. Like right. you know, I, I'm doubtful. Like even Bouchard, does it? Probably makes sense for him because he could be the seventh D man on the team. But being on the taxi squad in the NHL is that such a great idea for development? Maybe if you've already played forty games or thirty games in the in the uh, Swedish league, that that mm-hmm. that's palatable and it, it it does make sense given the way that NHL defensemen tend to go drop down because of injuries. But uh, yeah, Bruce. I, again, I'm just uh, like when I think of the Oilers roster now, like there's there's all these players with questions because of age and injury, and that includes key players like Larson and Clefbaum, right. and uh, Chris Russell with age, uh, who I I, I I think he, he we already saw his game drop one notch last year because of age, mm-hmm. um, and he doesn't have a lot of notches to go, but there are all kinds of players, and you know, including this year as you know this year I don't think it's Broberry, but I do think it's you know uh, it's Boo Bouchard, uh, Samarukov, Lagasin, um, Landstrom, all decent bats. And you did a post on that recently. Who's going to be that seventh D man? Mm-hmm. And and as we know, the seventh D man is going to play because players get hurt, they get banged up. And this is the seventh D man, even without Clefbaum on the team, I believe, right? Like it's 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 right uh, factoring in that he's not going right. to be on the team with Jones stepping into his place essentially. Right. Alrighty, anything the else? Only have, they only have four defensemen, not counting Clefbaum. They only have four defensemen who've played 100 games in the NHL. And they only have six who've played 10 games in the NHL, with, you know, Bear and Jones being five and six on that list with a season and a bit each. Uh, and then you're down to already, 
your seventh defenseman, Lagerson, with his eight games, he's actually seventh on the depth chart in NHL uh, experience with those eight games. So you better hope that one of these young fellows is is ready to make that step. But the fact is they got so much sort of redundancy and quadruple redundancy of several guys that might step in that that you you got to think at least one of them should be ready to to uh, to make that step. It's also good news, Bruce, in terms of the coming trade deadline for the NHL season, you know, whenever that is uh, this year. The owners don't have draft picks to trade. They just don't. Do they ever but, but they do have, they could move one or two of these guys, one or two, because there's not room for all of them, is the truth. And I think other teams are obviously doing, seeing the same thing that we're seeing. You want to improve your team. Well, this might be a way for the owners to pick up, let's say, that goalie that they might need in that moment to to move forward or that extra forward in that moment uh to move forward so um this this depth is going to come into play in a couple different ways and uh let's not blow it We've, the owners have had surpluses of like you know all those draft picks in the 2015th 2015th draft and they blew it you know they, they made a bad trade a really bad trade and blew blew the surplus blew the nest egg remember that great mm-hmm. albert brooks movie where they go to las vegas and they blow, they sell their house this couple and they and they have the nest egg and then they blow it in Vegas. You know, that's what Charlie did. He blew the nest egg. So let's let's hope they yeah. don't blow this nest egg. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I go back as a as a Oilers fan long standing of is it possible to have too much depth? And the answer is yes. And and it's yes when because you have fifteen forwards and you haven't got room for it all, that you decide to waive Ray Whitney and then you decide to trade Miroslav Shatan for pennies on the dollar because you haven't really factored where the guy fits in your big scheme of things. That's when it's that's when having too much you still got to pick the right guys out of that depth I guess is the moral of that story. Uh, yeah, this is like our podcast is like <laughs> remembrance Trauma of, revisited. Remembrance of things past where we Feel the what is the the, the the great Shakespeare poem where they you know you feel the, the that agony all over again. <laughs> Can't remember the exact line, but that's that's what we go through now and then here, Bruce. That's the price we pay for being aware. Well, for remembering the aughts, well the tens or the aughts or the nineties, yeah. If we're going back to the eighties, we're usually in safe territory, and otherwise. Oh God, that's where the most pain, Bruce. Teeth. There's no more greater the pain than August. August what it August tenth nineteen eighty eight like August 9th, yeah so let's uh, let's not go yeah there's some good memories there but man there's some real agony there as well <laughs> alrighty Bruce I think that's it is there anything else that you wanted to say any other thoughts or no we're waiting for some news to break on the NHL they seem to be at uh, at a standstill in terms of how they're going to get this uh, machine rolling again and of course uh, like the rest of society as a whole, uh, everything is at a little bit of, uh, at the mercy of, of the, uh, uh, COVID virus and what happens next in terms of, you know, government actions and shutdowns and so on. So, uh, it's to some degree it's out of their hands and to some degree it's, uh, you know, it's the owners and players squabbling about how best to split up the, the money and we'll, we'll see how it goes, but you got to think they know enough that, it would be disastrous to their business and their brand to have any kind of a, of a work stoppage prevent them from getting back in good time once it's safe to do so. 
I'm a, I've become, uh, you know, for a long time, I was doubtful about the vaccine stuff because there was people saying there's never been a coronavirus vaccine and blah, blah, blah. And, and it just seems like there's just been an unending run of good news on the vaccine front. And, and you know, some questions in Canada, but my hope is, Bruce, and, and I'm starting to get the, the sense that maybe there's just going to be so much vaccine, such a glut of vaccine produced uh, by companies like Moderna and uh Pfizer and uh, AstraZeneca, I think, AstraZeneca mm -hmm. in England and other companies as well. Mm -hmm. They're going to be such a glut that, that anyone who needs and wants the vaccine early in the new year, mm -hmm. in the first three months of the new year, I'm just fingers crossed that there's going to be so much that the world's going to change for the better. And man, would that ever be great? I think we could all use that. So that's my hope and wish for the new year. And I'm starting to just get a weird, you know, a, a bit of a sense that that's that's what's going to happen. Moderna, you're talking about a billion uh, mm -hmm. doses of the Moderna vaccine uh, in 2021. One oh. billion. So that's one company. Mm -hmm. And there's lots of these companies. There, I think that at one point there was like 130 companies, uh, different working on vaccines around the world. So there's Russian vaccines, there's Chinese vaccines. So how that impacts the NHL could be very good news for maybe... Maybe Pete fans will be in the stands yeah. by the time that the playoffs come around, if not before then. So fingers crossed. Alrighty, Bruce, thanks again for talking today. Thanks for listening, everyone. And in the meantime, and in between time, this has been another edition of the Cult of Hockey podcast. <laughs>